0: This is this is just never gonna stop happening. Every time I read this poem.
1: Nope, it's gonna be one of those poems. Ugh. It's one I of those. I to fuck
0: poems. this poem. I want this poem to fuck me.
1: Right, right, right. Christ. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Black Box Poetry. We are very excited to be back at this again tonight because we have something extra special. This is our first long poem episode, but before we get started, uh, hey, comrades, how are you doing tonight?
2: Uh, my name is Sean. I study Victorian literature, and I live in America's greatest city, Philadelphia.
0: I'm ready to read a sexy-ass poem. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian
1: And I'm Anastasia. I live in Rochester, New York. I study late 20th century American poetry. Yeah, guys. Well, tonight we have something extra special for you because we are reading, as Isaac said, a sexy poem. Uh, We are reading a long sexy poem. So whereas in our previous episodes, we read three at a time. Tonight, we are going to split one long poem into three sections over an hour. And we are really pumped to read this poem with you guys tonight. What are we reading, guys?
2: It's called The Undressing by Lee Young Lee.
1: Who's a contemporary poet, still alive and kicking. He has a book coming out in 2018. Y'all should buy it because if this is any education, holy crap, is this going to be an amazing book.
2: Do you want to just jump in?
1: Yeah, let's just hit
2: it. All right, cool. So I'm going to do the first, like, third or so of the poem, and then uh, we're going to take a break and talk about it and then go on from there. All right the undressing listen she says i'm listening i answer and kiss her chin obviously you're not she says i kiss her nose and both of her eyes i can do more than one thing at a time i tell her trust me i kiss her cheeks you've heard of planting lotuses in a fire she says you've heard of sifting gold from sand you know perfumed flesh in anklets and spirit unadorned take turns at lead and follow, one in action and repose. I kiss her neck and behind her ear, but there are things you need reminded of, she says. So remind me, love, I say. There are stories we tell ourselves, she says. There are stories we tell others. Then there's the sum of our hours death will render legible. I unfasten the top button of her blouse and nibble her throat with more kisses. Go on, I say. I'm listening. You better be, she says. You'll be tested. I undo her second, her third, fourth, and last buttons quickly, and then lean in to kiss her collarbone. She says, the world is a story that keeps beginning. In it, you have lived severally disguised. Bright ash, dark ash, mirror, moon. A child waking in the night to hear the thunder, a traveler stopping to ask the way home, and there's still the butterfly's night-sea journey to consider. She says, There are dreams we dream alone. There are dreams we dream with others. Then there's the lilac secret, life of fire, of God accomplished in the realm of change and desire. Pushing my hand away from her breast, she keeps talking. Alone, you dream in several colors, blue, wishing and following the river in company you dream in several others the time you don't have the time left over and the time it takes your lamp has a triple wick remembering questioning and sheltering made of your hearts and minds agreement with it you navigate the two seas day with everything inside it night and all that's missing Meanwhile, I encounter difficulty with her skirt knot, her fingers confounding my progress as she goes on reviewing the doubtful points. There are words we say in the dark, there are words we speak in the light, and sometimes they're the same words. From where I've been sitting beside her, I drop to one knee before her. There's the word we give to another, there's the word we keep with ourselves, and sometimes they're the same word. I slip one hand inside her blouse and find her naked waist. My other hand cradles her bare foot from which her sandal has fallen. A word has many lives. Quarry, the word is game, unpronounceable. Pursuant, the word is judge, pronouncing sentence. Affliction, the word is a thorn, chastising. I nudge her blouse open with my nose and kiss her breastbone. The initiating word embarks, fixed between sighted wings, and said, says, saying, none are the bird, each just moments of the flying.
1: I've read this poem how many times now, and listening to you read it, Sean, got that special poetry chill feeling. Oh my God, it's so good.
0: This one really does seem to just go bang every time. I I can't stop reading it Ever since you showed it to us, I've been reading it over and over again, and it's it's just not it's not wearing off.
2: It's a really amazing example of like a good piece of cable setting in a poem. Like the first let, let's say like page worth of text doesn't in itself seem especially remarkable, but it's going down really smoothly. And then at a certain point, you start to have certain phrases and words recurring enough that you begin to have a sense of a kind of world of imagery and metaphor. The fire, the birds, the difference between birds and flying, the flowers. And it's really weird to pause at this point in the poem because simultaneously it feels like we have too much on the table and not enough. Like, I want to keep going and reading the rest of the poem, but at the same time, I feel like there's already so, so much to sort of work through with what's already been laid out for us, even though that makes it harder to to pin down what we want to say about it.
0: The idea of table setting is critical here. The amount of momentum that this poem has makes it easy to not notice all of the things we're being taught about how to read it as we read these opening stanzas and the stanzas themselves are the most basic yet most essential of those elements. I think it's a very strong opening gambit to have a one line stanza and a three word stanza for that matter, right at the beginning of this poem. Listen, she says, line break and stanza break. It's uh, just throwing the cards down on the table for how freely he intends to use his stanza breaks, how willing he is to have uneven numbers of lines per stanza, how willing he is to not give it that sense of balance and order and uh, formal virtuosity, the kind of effects we were talking about with the the sonnets in the previous episode.
1: Yeah, I love, what, um, I love what both of you are saying because I think part of what this poem uh, does for me is I, I have a really hard time stopping myself. I just want to keep going. Um, it does go down really smooth, especially the opening. And the tension points, the way that it um, asks you to keep reading it, um, that momentum does pick up as you read. And you're absolutely right to go to the stanza breaks for where a lot of that tension comes from because the opening... Yeah, that, that is bold, a one-line first stanza. Listen, she says. I'm listening, I answer and kiss her chin. Um, like Sean said, although it is bold to start with that first line, there isn't anything particularly surprising about the way the tension between those two stanzas operate yet. We're, we know that kind of um, dialogue pattern already. That's pretty familiar for us. Um, so we basically kind of allow that to progress because it's familiar. And it's it's interesting because dialogue between two people is interesting, but it hasn't proven itself yet. You know, obviously you're not, she says, is the next line. So it's listen, she says, stands a break, line break. I'm listening, I answer and kiss her chin. stands a break line break. obviously you're not, she says. So there's a moment of comedy, there's a moment where the tension changes. Um, and it's really from there that we start kind of getting this conversation back and forth. And that's, I think it's the, uh, that pinging between two points that we really are moving through the rest of the poem.
2: I feel like one of the things that this really demonstrates is how much, like, complexity and energy you can get out of narrative in a poem. So even though this doesn't really feel like a story in any kind of conventional sense of the term, there's still a really powerful way in which the the fact that you lose track of who is in charge of any given stanza has a really interesting effect in the poem. The I speaker does not have the most interesting lines in the poem. It's the she speaker who has all of the most interesting lines, so much so that you could even say, like, she has all the most interesting stanzas. Normally what happens is that when she starts talking, we really depart from the normal ping ponginess of the dialogue into something that's much more fulsome and elaborated and interesting. And that also creates this sort of weird awareness about the things that she's saying, where they're not only beautiful in their own right or interesting in their own right, but also you are like abruptly reminded of them as being conversational gambits, um, like, you know, relational, you know, like uh, positions and
1: so on. Sean, uh, Can I ask you, where do you get that first moment where you get the clue that she's the one who's going to have the more interesting lines? I'm just curious where that happens for you.
2: She says at a certain point, the world is a story that keeps beginning. In it, you have lived severally disguised, bright ash, dark ash, mirror, moon, a child waking in the night to hear the thunder, a traveler stopping to ask the way home, and there's still the butterfly's night seed journey to consider. She says, "There are dreams we dream alone. there are dreams we dream with others, and then there's the lilac secret life of fire of God accomplished in the realm of change and desire and then we get pushing my hand away from her breast. She keeps talking. so at that point, we've had two back to back stanzas of a putative addressee really taking control of the poem. And when the I speaker reemerges, it's actually not as subject, it's an object. It's not as the person who's responding or doing, it's as someone who's being shuffled away. And I think that's probably the moment when you first get the sense that the there's a weird tension in the poem between the vantage point of the the, the speaker who's in some ways subject of the poem and the the woman who is, in a more profound sense, driving the kind of figurative and conceptual and emotional dynamic
0: of the poem. I completely agree with you that that's where the sense of her expanding role in the poem becomes most palpable. What I want to drive home here is the effect that you're describing on a conceptual or thematic level, or on a macro level, if you will, is happening on a micro level, on a linguistic level, And it's specifically happening in terms of these stanza breaks and line breaks. Early on in the poem, the stanza breaks could be imagined to be functioning almost like scene direction. Like the stanza breaks are happening in service of the dialogue. Like when an amateurish director like George Lucas in the Star Wars prequels is editing the scene in service of the script rather than in favor of the actor's rhythm. In the beginning of the poem, you can experience it that way. These stanza breaks are in service of the dialogue, are functioning like a play. But here we get line breaks isolating pieces of language with one another. The line where that's happening for me most palpably is bright ash, dark ash, mirror moon. That's setting up an analogy that is not self-evident and yet is ringingly available and begs to be interrogated by the reader, you have the association between mirror and moon because the moon reflects light, and that's where its shine comes from, and you're invited to map that analogy onto bright ash and dark ash in a way that's not self-evident. That's when the stanza break starts to create aesthetic crackle and not just function in service of the dialogue and the scene direction
1: that was the same point where the pivot happens for me too and part of what triggered it for me was the way that there's a bit of a wrong note for me in that mini stanza in that two-line stanza because we have those beautiful sounds that you drew our attention to bright ash dark ash mirror moon the sound is very aware of itself in these stanzas so you get that again there's in the next stanza then there's the light lack secret light of life of fire of god accomplished in the realm of change and desire we get the rhyme of fire and desire the life of fire we get the f's that keep playing and we get the sense of the sound kind of almost getting into like intoxicating itself so when we get to that next stanza pushing my hand away from her breast the rhythm of that feels right she keeps talking Feels wrong to me. That feels like, wait a minute, that sound doesn't quite work. The there's not enough assonance or consonance, and then it picks up again in the next one. Alone, you dream in several colors, blue, wishing and following the river. In company, you dream in several others. The time you don't have, we get that repetition again and more assonance and consonance. It's almost like, yes, there was a beat off. Hold on, let me pick it up again.
2: It almost feels there like what that's doing is confirming that the poem is most beautiful when it's vocalized on the you the speaker, on the addressee.
1: Kind of like an extreme juxtaposition happening there. Um, yeah. Maybe for the first time, because by the end of the section, when we jump down, when the I speaker re- returns, I nudge her blouse open with my nose and kiss her breastbone. The I speaker gets assonance there and gets lyricism. But I wonder if it's because to begin this trajectory, we have to get a a different kind of contrast between the two before that can kind of, um, the lyric can kind of almost, I almost want to say eat itself. There's this weird way where the two speakers almost start kind of eating each other a little bit. I mean, yes, in a sensual way, and yes, kind of in a sonic way too.
0: I think the key element of the relationship between these two characters that makes that effect work in this first section is how the uh, interruption of the male character's desire is running in parallel with an interruption of the lyricism. This isn't to disagree with your argument, John. I think it actually pushes in the same direction. But when we have the female speaker pushing my hand away from her breast, she keeps talking. I agree with you, Anastasia, that is a bit of a sour note. We're losing the groove we've been building where the sonic quality is starting to emerge. And that interruption in our aesthetic experience of the poem is paired with the interruption of the undressing, with the interruption of the male characters libidinal interaction with the female character so the male character yes is interrupting the development of the most interesting part of the poem which is the female character's voice but his libidinal energy is simultaneously providing the momentum of the poem and the key argument there, I think, is the reason the beginning of the poem it goes down so well is because the eroticism is providing momentum on the cheap. The example you could almost use is uh, uh, historians of technology claim that any particular carrier of information goes through a porn phase. You can go back to iModi, an early book that had pornographic images in it, or VHS tapes being used for scandalous purposes earlier in their history. The technology of this poem is sort of going through a porn phase before it's put to highbrow use.
2: I mean, this is, I think, like, I don't want to keep us on the early section for too long, but this is sort of setting up a, a conceptual question that I'll be interested in, which is, to what extent is the poem trying to sublimate erotic desire into a conceptual framework? So, you know, if we think about a lot of the best books about love have this really weird quality that they're generically peculiar and perverse. So I'm thinking about Plato's Symposium, Stendhal's On Love, uh, Bart's Lover's Discourse, and Carson's um, Eros the Bittersweet. All of them propose very sort of schematic ways of thinking about love and yet become very kind of polymorphous and strange and weird. And one of the classic sort of gambits in the, you know, history of attempts to theorize or philosophize love is the idea that we can take erotic desire and somehow use the energy or the sort of um, um, for dynamism of it and move it up to some other conceptual level. And the poem even in the section we've looked at so far, is trying to imagine what that might look like in the interaction of two specific people, um, and so that's something that I want to track as we go forward. That is
0: such a good point that it's it's making me into a Sean Hughes fanboy, but I'm also a Joseph Campbell fanboy, and I have <laughs> to point out the reference to the night sea journey. That is a, a mythological term. That Joseph Campbell uses in his analysis of archetypical stories. The female character is actively using recognizable references to a theoretical framework one can apply to mythology. So she is sort of already raising this question, and is perhaps more aware of the thesis, the poem is debating and the male character is like a, like a Richard III who knows that he's in a play. She sort of knows that she's in a poem that's preoccupied with the theoretical question.
1: I think we repeat that question one more time and maybe use that to start framing our second section. So that question is, how does erratic desire get consumed by a conceptual framework? I think that might be what we do to get into that second section hold that all together and move forward
0: let's get right into it yeah doubling back the word is infinite we circle ourselves the fruit rots in time and we're just passengers of our voices a bird in one ear crying two there are two worlds a bird in the other ear urging through be through with this world and that world her blouse lapses around her shoulders, and I bend lower to kiss her navel. There are voices that wake us in the morning, she says. There are voices that keep us up all night. I lift my face and look into her eyes. I tell her the voices I follow to my heart's shut house say, A member of the late and wounded light and joined to praise, Each attends a song that keeps leaving. Now I'm fondling her breasts and kissing them, now I'm biting her nipples, not meaning to hurt her, I'm hurting her a little, and for these infractions I receive the gentlest tugs at my ear. She says, all night, the lovers ask, do you love me? Over and over, the manifold beloved answers, I love you, back and forth. Merging, parting, folding, spending, the lovers' voices and the voices of the beloved are the ocean's legions scaling earth's black bell, their bright-crested foam, the rudimentary beginnings of bridges and wings, the dream of flying, and the yearning to cross over. Now I'm licking her armpit, I'm inhaling its bitter herbal fumes and savoring its flavor of wood smoke, I've undone the knot of her skirt— Bodies have circled bodies from the beginning, she says. But the voices of lovers are creation's most recent flowers, mere buds of fire nodding on their stalks. In love we see God burns hidden, turning inside everything that turns. And everything turns, everything is burning. But all burning is not the same. Some fires kindle freedom. Some fires consolidate your bondage. "'Do you know the difference?' "'I tell her, "'I want you to cup your breasts in both of your hands "'and offer them to me. "'I want you to make them wholly available to me. "'I want to be granted open liberty "'to leave many tiny, petal-shaped bruises "'like little kisses all over you. "'One and one is one,' she says. "'Bear shineth in bear. "'Think,' she says, "'of the seabirds we watched at dawn.' wheeling between that double blue above and below them. Defined by the gravity they defy, they're the radiant shadows of what they resist. And their turns and arcs in air that will never remember them are smiles on the face of the upper abyss. Their flying makes our inner spaciousness visible, even habitable, restoring us to infinity, we beings of non-being, each so recent a creature and only lately spirits learning how to love. Trill their winged hungers, fill the attic blue, and signal our nagging jeopardy. Death's bias, the slope of our lives every minute. I want to hear you utter the sharpest little cries of tortured bliss, I say, like a slapped whelp spurt exquisite gasps of delighted pleasure. True lovers know, she says, hunger vacant of love is a confusion. Spoiling and squandering, such fruit love's presence wins harvest proves the vine and the hearts of the ones who tend it everything else is gossip guessing at love's taste the menace of the abyss will be subdued i say when i extort from you the most lovely cries and quivering whispered pleas and confused appeals of stop and more and harder to love she says for nothing what birds at home in their sky have dared more What circus performer, the tent above him, the net below, has risked so much? What thinker, what singer, both trading for immortality? Nothing saves him who's never loved. No world is safe in that one's keeping. I know you more than I know, she says. My body, astonished, answers to your body without me telling it to. She says I want you to touch me as if you want to know me, not arouse me. She says we are travelers among other travelers in an outpost by the sea. We meet in transit, strange to each other, like birds of passage between a country and a country, and suffering from the same affliction of sleeplessness. We find each other in the night, while others sleep, and between the languages you speak and the several I remember, we convene at the one we have in common, a language neither of us were born to. And we talk, we talk with our voices, and we talk with our bodies, and behind what we say. The ocean's dark shoulders rise and fall all night, and its massive wings ebbing and surging. I tell her, our voices shelter each other, figures in a dream of refuge and sanctuary. Therefore, she says, designations of north, south, east, and west, winter, spring, summer, fall, first son, second son, first daughter, second daughter change but should correspond to a current picture of the sky each of our days fulfills the measures of the sanctum and its great tables rounds the tables are not round or not only round at every corner opposites emerge and you meet yourself i bow my head and raise her foot to my mouth
1: I think this is where we get a lot of some of the most gorgeous lines in the poem, this kind of, this part that we've decided is a center section for the purposes of our podcast. But one of the most gorgeous things about it is that the distance between the two speakers really fluctuates, really moves very, very close and moves very far apart. And that tension between the two stand between the alternating stanzas between them, and they're not always alternating. Um, really highlights that because of the way the sound quality will move and you get that right at the very end with that last um, stanza break. So the way the stanza break works is there's a slightly longer stanza that is ascribed to her, I think, but maybe not. The tables are not round, or not only round, at every corner opposites emerge and you meet yourself. Stands a break line break. I bow my head and raise her foot to my mouth. That yourself and mouth, um those start really blurring and pinging off of each other, so that the the two people, the two voices, starts kind of bleeding into one another, kind of start becoming one and the same.
0: See, I think a round table suddenly revealing that it has corners is the most erotic idea I've (laughs) ever encountered. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We talked before about Anne Carson's idea of distance and the libidinal distance or erotic distance and metaphorical distance being the same idea. This poem where we have eros and aesthetics dancing together pulling against each other and therefore in the same direction like they are here is, is crying out for a line like this. The perfectly round table is the oneness that the lovers are aspire, are aspiring to when they come together. But the ineradicable presence of the corners maintains that distance that these are two selves that have achieved this level of intimacy that their distinct separateness as two beings reasserts itself, even when they're at their most intimate. That's what redeems Eros from narcissism.
2: But I would I would even go further and say that one of the things this poem is struggling with is that the desire to show someone else to a condition of impersonality through erotic love is itself the sort of like potentially narcissistic or compromised or, you know, like bad faith kind of position. So like I'm thinking about the stanza where the, the, the prime speaker, the eye speaker says the menace of the abyss will be subdued. I say when I extort from you, the most lovely cries and quivering whispered, pleas and confused appeals of stop and more and harder that like there's this idea that has meant a lot to a lot of different people that there's something about the condition of eroticism that throws one into a state of depersonalization you lose yourself you stand outside of yourself even the word ecstasy means to stand outside of oneself and the weird thing that the poem seems to be grappling with is that there's a certain kind of perblind you know foolishness that thinks, I know that one's own eroticism can easily turn into a form of narcissism, but if I focus on someone else's pleasure, I'll have solved the problem. And that will mean that I can sort of whittle away at my own feeling of vulnerability or my own feeling of insecurity. I can make the menace of the the abyss be subdued, if I focus on someone else's ecstasy and one of the things that the the you speaker in the poem that the addressee is doing through and through is refusing that and saying no 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 I would much rather you know me than arouse me which I think is taking the um the sort of fantasy of impersonality or ecstasy and making it only available at the highest level of indirection
1: I really love that reading, Sean, and I think that stanza right after, or following three stanzas after what you read, when she says, to love, she says, for nothing, what birds at home in their sky have dared more, what circus performer, the tent above him, the net below has risked so much, what thinker, what singer, both trading for immortality, nothing saves him who's never loved, no world is safe in that one's keeping. She gives us lots of examples of birds and people and, and movers and thinkers who risk and change, um, but part of what she's also doing is she's intellectualizing the physical to try to kind of push back on this claim that you, you can find the personal in or find the intimate in the erotic, um, and in a certain way, she ends up she distances herself, right? She argues for proximity and in the process actually argues against it. And in a certain way, the the or the or the she-speaker actually ends up kind of cutting against herself for a second or maybe multiple places in the poem.
2: Yeah, and I, I want to say that part of what makes this poem so great is that it really is dialectical. Like, it really is an argument. And we, I think, so far have been... I think favoring her viewpoint because it's more sophisticated and more kind of like figuratively dynamic, but there's a, a also a weird way in which she is stuck with trying to map out um, the more self-abnegating or self-transcending aspects of love outside of the erotic, which is not inherently an easy you know, road to toe. Let's say, um, and so there's 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 a weird way in which I think it's completely possible that she can sometimes cut against her own interest or cut against her own position because she is also being forced into arguing uh, love into a straight line where it may be crooked, even even in its uh, even in its um, crookedness.
0: The key line in terms of that reading, I think, is. We circle ourselves, line break. The fruit rots in time, line break. And we're just passengers of our voices. The fact that neither of these positions is completely defensible or completely functional for constituting a fully satisfactory erotic cosmos is what makes the dance possible. Yeah. And the fact that they've each taken such a hard line position... That's why the dialectic metaphor is, uh, is, is so apt here. In uh, uh, Tom Stoppard's play, he has an intellectual who's returning from a conversation with Marx who says, I can't abide arguing with that man. I say something to him like, but Carl, I don't think all historical causes are material. And he says, well, you would think that you're not a member of the proletariat. The fact that her argumentative position is inescapable, and its momentum—momentum is the wrong word—and its structure uh, confines her to a particular discourse, and the fact that his momentum-driven libidinal energy confines him to a discourse is what makes the dialectic equation work— and what makes that wonderful tension we have in the round table suddenly having corners available.
1: Well, I don't know that it's so confining, though. I actually think that the moment that Sean kind of gave us makes it a little bit less confining, that it's not so simple as, um, now I'm licking her armpit, I'm inhaling its bitter herbal fumes and savoring the its flavor of wood smoke, I've undone the knot to her skirt. The kind of eroticism and focus and the um, kind of traditional narrative that we would be given that I'm just absorbed in in the body I'm absorbed in the erotic and in the physical isn't isn't so simple anymore at that part where that Sean read earlier so beautifully the menace of the abyss will be subdued I say when they extort from you the most lovely cries it's that that menace of the abyss of of the bodily that isn't It's not the bodily in the way that we are kind of tricked into thinking earlier. Um, I don't know. It really changes that narrative and, and her narrative of kind of trying to elevate the erotic or elevate around the erotic to find this kind of larger love gets much more dim in a way. She doesn't seem as enlightened here.
0: Well, because we could picture her contemplating, this abyss in her sort of platonic void were it not for the momentum that he is providing. That's what I'm trying to get at here is that he requires her to complicate him and she requires him to complicate her.
1: Absolutely, yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Which I think is... Part of what's important about that is there's a certain kind of argument that to me seems like it comes out of bad faith which says um love even a non-providential idea of love even you know your most erotic kind of love if it's just unleashed is going to somehow you know take people outside of themselves and sort of cause them to transcend themselves because it will put them in contact with so many different people and because the state of erotic ecstasy will undermine the sort of rational, self-interested, you know, self-contained idea of the self. And it feels like part of what tends to sort of be problematic about that viewpoint is that it's uh, sort of in, when described in theory, it can take on, a lot of the features of a sort of much more um, idealized self-abnegating form of love. But when it's actually played out in practice, when there are specific humans in a specific room, it feels like it's much more a negotiation of desires. And one of the things this poem seems to be doing is playing with the the way in which women are simultaneously forced in the position of abstracting their desire and also being less uh, sort of intellectual. And men are put in the position of, of sort of, you know, um, uh, physicalizing the desire, but somehow being more intellectual. And it's banging those against each other. So the woman is, is far more intellectual than the man here, more conceptual, more interesting, more engaging, more dynamic. Um, but she still is in the position of abstracting and conceptualizing her desire. And the man is kind of buffoonish, sort of silly, but is in the position of still sort of physicalizing his desire. Um, And it's that kind of mixed meeting that feels really sort of, you know, salutary and dynamic in this poem.
1: Yeah.
0: We're going to have to talk about entropy because that's what's making these selves so impermanent and making them these travelers encountering each other. Because we have death's bias, the slope of our lives every minute. That is a heartbreakingly beautiful way of describing that. Death's bias and the slope. I think of the slope as the, the bias of the terrain against one of two contending armies or the law of nature that causes a boulder to roll down a hill. Sun Tzu actually compared those because the analogy is so natural that your army should attack like a boulder rolling down a hill, not a boulder being rolled up a hill.
2: Mm-hmm. We even talk about, like, uh, a view being slanted.
0: Exactly. That, that, yeah, I... that metaphorical nexus is so strong, it casts such a long shadow. Mm-hmm. This entire stanza, shrill their winged hungers, fill the attic blue, and signal our nagging jeopardy. Death's bias, the slope of our lives every minute. The nagging jeopardy, the irresolvable quality of this situation, is central to the dynamic we've been talking about, where it's not a matter of unleashing one kind of eros or another but about eros straining at a leash this fucking poem
1: this fucking poem oh my god are we ready for the the grand finale yeah all right here we go the pillared tables make a tower and a ladder They constitute the throne and the crown. The crown is not for your head. The throne is not your seat. The days on which the tables stand will be weighed and named. And the days are not days, not the way you might understand days. The tables summon the feast and are an aspect of the host. The smell of her foot makes me think of saddles. I lick her instep. I kiss her toes. I kiss her ankle. Don't you kiss my lips with that mouth, she says. Gold bit, I think. Tender spur, I think. I kiss her calves. I kiss her knees. I kiss the insides of her thighs. I'm thinking about her hip bones. I'm tonguing the crease where her thigh and her belly meet. The rounds enclose the dance, she says. The round and the square together determine the dimensions of the ark, she says. The water is rising as we speak. Call everyone to the feast. The smell of her body mixes with her perfume and makes me woozy. All being tends toward fire, I say. All being tends toward fire, saith the fire, she says, correcting me. All being tends toward water, saith the water, light, saith the light, wings, saith the birds, voice, saith the voiceless. I tell myself, give up guessing, give up these frightened gestures of a stooped heart. I think inside her is the safest place to be. Inside her with all those other mysteries, those looming immensities, God, time, death, childhood. Are you paying attention, she says, this is important. One and one is two, you and me are three, a long arithmetic, no temporal hand reckons, rules galaxies and ants exact and exacting, lovers obey, sometimes contradicting human account. I'm drooling along her ribs. I'm smacking my lips and tongue to better taste her mossy, nutty, buttery, acrid sweat. Listen, she says, there's one more thing. Regarding the fires, there are two. But I'm thinking, my hands know things my eyes can't see. My eyes see things my hands can't hold. I'm telling myself, Left and right grow wiser in the same house. Listen, she says. Never let the fires go out. The paler, the hotter. But I'm thinking, pale alcove. I'm thinking, my heart ripens with news. The rest of me waits to hear. Are you listening? But I'm not listening. I'm thinking. A nest of eggs for my crown, please, and for my cushion, my weight in grapes. I'm thinking, in one light, love might look like siege. In another light, rescue might look like danger. She says, the seeds of fire are ours to mother. The dust, the shavings, and all spare materials must be burned in both fires, the visible and the invisible. Even the nails burned in them. Even the tools burned. And then the oven dismantled and burned. Have you been hearing me? It's too late for presidents. It's too late for flags. It's too late for movie stars and the profit economy. The war is on. If love doesn't prevail, who wants to live in this world? Are you listening? You thought my body was a tree in which lived a bird. But now can you see, flocks alive in this blazing foliage? Blue throngs, green multitudes, and pale congregations, and each member flits from branch to living branch. Each is singing at different amplitudes and frequencies. Each is speaking secrets that will ripen into sentence. And their voices fan my fragrant smoldering, Disclosing the indestructible body of law. Ratifying ancient covenants. Establishing new cities. And their notes time the budding of your own flowering. Die now. And climb up into this burning.
0: It seems self-evident that the way you resolve this irresolvable tension is a climax, is an orgasm. What's not self-evident is that that climax is an embrace of entropy. We have the reference to the burning at the very end. Die now, and climb up into this burning. The, The death, the climax, and the burning of entropy are sequestered together on this one line and are thereby associated. This is the same burning we had referred to above with the phrase, everything is burning. That's a phrase that Zen practitioners actually use to remind themselves that everything is impermanent. You look at a stone building, you imagine that it's burning like a piece of firewood is burning. You recognize entropy.
2: Yeah, but another way of thinking about it would be that after the idea of orgasm as the little death, you know, die now, it then turns over to obligation commitment something like that and climb up into this burning which feels very different so I'm thinking about there's a moment this this last third of the poem we've arbitrarily you know divvied it up but the last third of the poem roughly has lots of metaphysical claims that are being mulled over and toyed with And one of them is this idea which You're associating with Zen, which it certainly is associated with, but it's also associated with Heraclitus, one of the pre-Socratic philosophers, that everything is of the nature of fire. But the one that really jumped out at me is when she says to him, one and one is two, you and me are three. My association for that is a claim of of Zhuangzi, which is that um, one and one equals three because you have the one, the other, and both together. And this is an idea that uh, I I know Oscar Wilde picks up on and is sort of widely circulated afterwards. And it feels like what's significant there is one and one can only be three if you're willing to view the combination of them as being binding and significant. It's not enough to say these are two things that are incidentally combined with each other. You have to say there's some kind of necessary connection here, or if not necessary, then at least meaningful, significant, um, dutiful. You know, it's not just die now. It's die now and climb up into this burning.
0: Hence, we have the flocks. You thought my body was a tree in which lived a bird, but now can you see flocks alive in this blazing foliage? The multiplication. And in fact, this is a more fully realized form of something that the female speaker attempted earlier. She had the manifold beloved. All night, the lovers ask, do you love me? Over and over, the manifold beloved answers, I love you. You have multiple attempts at a multiplication of subjects, and then through the actual commitment, the actual oneness of these two souls, the formation of this first person plural, you have a successful realization of what the female speaker's discourse was attempting early in the poem.
1: The energy in this part of the poem, um, it has this metaphysical quality to it. It, it. You can tell that there's a lot that's being churned through, and the simplicity of just these two voices, these two bodies moving against each other, gets very overcomplicated and overwrought. The simple mechanism that moves the poem forward: Are you listening? But I'm not listening. I'm thinking, right? That. She says, he says, are you listening? I'm not listening. That's kind of the, the motor that moves through these ideas, that allows us to get through all of these ideas. And that motor stops a bit here, kind of trips itself a little bit because of that line, because of that stanza. Are you listening? But I'm not listening, period. I'm thinking, comma, open stanza, line break, uh, new stanza, a nest of eggs for my crown, please, and for my cushion, my weight in grapes. So we get a new stanza, and the speaker who used to give us the physicality has given up that physicality. We now are part of that kind of metaphysical discourse.
0: It's fascinating that you bring us to the question of whether or not he's listening, because the poem is making that question a very difficult one by having him use her language. Mm -hmm. Listen, she says, never let the fires go out. The paler, the hotter. Stanza break, but I'm thinking pale alcove. So he is claiming not to listen in the next stanza, yet we see him adopting a piece of language that she is bringing to the table and arguably even going into the abstract realm with her by adopting her language. You've got the pale alcove, you've got the Yannick image, and then elsewhere in the poem, you have the abstractions being located inside her. The abstractions are positioned there. So perhaps this is a victory for her that he's using her language.
1: Right, it's precisely possibly a victory and possibly a failure right at the exact same moment because the fact that he does use her language but then transforms it right it's did you really hear me or are you just hearing what you want and moving it into something new or are you hearing me and building it into something new for the both of us right the poem does such a good job right in that moment of maybe maybe it is and maybe it's not. Maybe this is just hearing what I want to hear and continuing forward in this, this separate entity. And I just, it's unbelie- it's breathtaking how it does that, how it really gives both of those possibilities. There is this very funny way, right? Where the poem does, there's a little bit of consuming itself. The language consumes itself and digests itself. We lose track of the erotic desire and we lose the possibility of kind of positive union in its very kind of digestion, but that same kind of consumption might also create the erotic des- perpetuate the erotic desire i I don't know I don't know what the poem actually gives me; it just gives me the possibility of both frankly, and kind of the the possibility that that those are those two tension points are always at odds.
0: The language of tension points is appropriate here. I think it ties into the idea that the use of the word pale is a potential victory for her but it's also a potential unity and transcendence and this um, I'm I'm going to be not very postmodern here cuz everybody knows that I'm a, a lonely modernist on my mountaintop ravaged by meteor strikes but isn't there something physiological here there's a long tradition of poems about the male potency being more limited physiologically than female potency or female erotic potential there's lots of poems where the man climaxes and the woman's erotic potential is still active in a way that his isn't that adds a certain domain of risk to this that i think the poem is calling upon
2: Yeah, there are a lot of modernist poems about that. (laughs) Boom! Yeah! I mean, another way of thinking about it, which is, in a way, between modernism and postmodernism, is that um, lovers work at cross-purposes. There's that line from, I think it's one of Philip Larkin's letters, where he says, having sex with someone is like asking someone else to blow your nose for you. (laughs) Which is so evocative. Oh, it, you know, like, it's it's like the, the most grotesque way that a man could describe his sexual desires um, and still have them be completely self-defeating and pointless. But I'm also thinking about that image in one of Larkin's poems of uh, two people lying next to each other, and there's the pun on lying in bed, that there's always that possibility that if you have two people talking at each other, even if... One could repeat back what the other one just said, that they're not actually listening to each other, which I think this poem is really fascinated by. Um, the fact that he can repeat back her language doesn't mean that he's really listening, but it also means that the fact that he's not listening is not, uh, does not preclude her from uh, winning him over in the long run, even though that isn't necessarily the erotically satisfying or even emotionally satisfying outcome
1: for this situation. And vice versa, actually, yeah. right? That it doesn't just because he's not listening doesn't preclude that she's not going to keep asking him to listen. In a certain way, I almost wonder if that's more of the argument of the poem, right? That perpetuation, that like kind of constant motion, that like on a certain level, this poem could we could do this poem could go on two times, three times itself, and continue this this, are you listening? I'm not sure if you're listening. And, and kind of that's the endeavor to kind of keep working against each other's purposes, try to use each other's language, try to kind of like work past that divide. Um,
0: I completely agree with you. I think that's the engine that drives the poetic argument. It is true that what she is saying when she constantly interrupts herself to ask him if he is listening is the most interesting part of the poem and is more interesting than his sort of corporeal eroticism. But the fact that she has to continue with her stops and starts and has to continue this aesthetic teasing process that the reader gets to enjoy throughout the poem is necessitated by the fact that it's not clear whether or not he's listening If she didn't have to keep asking, we wouldn't have the poem we have. And if it was self-evident that he was listening, she wouldn't have to keep asking.
2: And that is kind of the devotional quality of love, that there's an element of hearkening after someone, like you're waiting for an apocalypse that's never going to happen. It's a very dramatic way of putting it, but the point is, there's a sense of like of readiness that you you ideally want in someone else and want to provide for someone else. That you're you. It's, it's not just that you were listening, but that you're listening in a way that is going to somehow encompass everything that could possibly be said to you.
1: It's interesting that this kind of came out of a moment of thinking about Philip Larkin, right? Because Philip Larkin is so famously outside of most romantic relationships and his famous poem reasons for attendance is really about being on the outside, looking in um, and realizing that he's not capable of having that kind of ongoing conversation that he can watch these bodies moving against each other and judge them harshly um, for that movement and for participating with one another um, and ultimately his way out of, out of that, out of recognizing his own failure to perpetuate a conversation is by is by saying, well, they're probably lying to one another, not realizing yeah. that the process of that lying, because he's on the outside of it, because he's not part of it, he can't see that the process of that lying, the process of saying, are you listening? No, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, is actually the very process that allows it to perpetuate and to continue.
0: There's a shade of that Larkin-style abstraction in the female speaker's position, I think, where you have her saying, don't you kiss my lips with that mouth. There's a certain degree of uh, abstraction and revulsion or withdrawal from the bodily element of this that's a similar distancing effect to what you're describing with Larkin, but it's actually contributing to the devotional element of the poem. That's why it's happening so close to the description of him kissing her feet.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because it's not quite the same. It's revulsion as an invitation rather than revulsion as a rejection. Yeah. But the only way it becomes revulsion as an invitation is because the other speaker who we've generally been thinking about in terms of not being as enlightened or not having as much to say that other speaker is the more enlightened one in that response. Cause the speaker can read that possibility of revulsion actually as an invitation.
2: Yeah. It's not like a table clearing revulsion. It's not a get the fuck out of here. It's a try again. Right. Hit reset. start over
1: right exactly and he does right he's like okay i won't kiss your mouth i'll kiss your calves i'll kiss your knees i'll kiss the insides of your thighs right that's the invitation okay i won't kiss your mouth i'm listening
0: to you he's indefatigable and his his clownish quality suggests that we, we might want to dismiss him but he's prepared to accept that clownish quality that he acquires in confronting female sexual power. He embraces that, and that makes the poem run.
1: Well, and the wisdom of it, right? The certain wisdom in, okay, if not that, then this.
2: You mean in the sense that he's not taking it overly personally?
1: Yeah, because the less mature... Yeah. The less mature speaker, the less mature listener would take that personally and be like, "Oh, okay, then I'm being rejected." Right? Yeah,
2: would be more, much more resentful about it.
1: Right. And this yeah. speaker instead is like, "Oh, okay. Okay, I can I can work with that. You're telling me yeah. this, which means which means that this is okay, or like or which means that okay, you're saying this, but what are you not saying?" And kind of filling in those things that she's not saying because the female speaker is so dedicated to using language in an interesting way, she kind of gives a lot of possibility for what she isn't saying because there's so much language he can kind of work around that.
0: Again, I hate to be gross, but our reading of this poem has taught us that there's utility in that. I I think it's not just that he is not taking this rejection as invitation personally personally. He's actively eroticizing it. That's why we get him kissing her feet. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a foot fetishist myself, but I see where they're coming from, and this is where they're coming from this devotional gesture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: There's a, a very beautiful poem by a friend of mine named Kashif where he describes a woman dangling her feet out of the window of her project apartment and describes the blisters on her feet from the shoes she wears as being like the wounds on her psyche inflicted by having to live in the society she lives in. The the feet are and access point for a entire cosmos of eroticism if you conceptualize them in this particular way there's very powerful associations being activated here
2: yeah there's like that that line from uh wittgenstein that the best image of the human soul is the human body
1: favorite parts of the poem
2: i mean i think it's already been discussed but the, the, the moment where she says i want you to touch me as if you want to know me not arouse me she says we are travelers among other travelers in an outpost by the sea we meet in transit strange to each other like birds of passage between a country and a country and suffering from the same affliction of sleeplessness we find each other in the night while others sleep oof so good
1: so good i was gonna point to the same one because that stands a break between uh i want you to touch me as if you want to know me not arouse me stands a break she says we are travelers among other travelers in an outpost by the sea the register change there is just wild and yeah. stunning oh
0: This is also a key section in terms of the idea of discourses that they're both being yanked along by because we have them speaking a language that they have in common that isn't a native language for either of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If there's a potential for... Oneness or commitment or whatever the resolution beyond the mere climax that this poem offers is. That's where it lies. Both of them learning to speak this language that isn't a native language for either of them.
1: Mm-hmm. I think my absolute favorite part is what Sean, the one Sean read, but the other one that I actually really enjoyed in this reading, and I think every time I read this poem, there's a new part that really stands out to me. But... The part that really stood out to me this time was right after the part Isaac brought us to about death's bias, the slope of our lives every minute. And again, it's another moment of register change. I want to hear you utter the sharpest little cries of tortured bliss, I say, like a slapped whelp spurt, exquisite gasps of delighted pleasure but true lovers know she says hunger vacant of love is a confusion spoiling and squandering such fruit loves presence wins the harvest proves the vine and the hearts of the ones who tend it that moment of register change across those three stanzas um, mm, that's gorgeous
0: I think that section also invokes the possibility of the female speaker's conquest of the male speaker idiomatically because we have the line I say like a slope, I say like a slapped whelp spurt that simile could be read onto the I say or onto the effect the male speaker is trying to produce
1: Yeah. Yeah. What's yours, Isaac?
0: It's still the rounded table that still has corners. The tables are not round or not only round. At every corner, opposites emerge and you meet yourself. The possibility of oneness or communion with something as complicated as a person is actually expressed there, the possibility and the danger.
1: Yeah, in a certain way, you very much, at least the way you're reading it, it's very much a revision of um, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. Wait, how is that translated?
0: Each, each lover appoints themselves as the guardian of the other's solitude. Thank you. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't necessarily see this as a revision because I think protecting the solitude of one's beloved is necessary to make the reaching toward communion possible. If the uh, lovers solitude were not intact, there would be no distance to be jumped. there would be no long, beautiful, curvaceous leg of Ann Carson's triangle for that electricity to jump across.
1: Right, um, right. That's why I'm saying it's a bit of a re- revision of that because Rilke doesn't give us that possibility of really closing that distance. Rilke asks for us to keep those lives parallel and this kind of gives us the possibility to kind of um, intersect and go back parallel again, right?
0: The The distinction I'm trying to make is that the reason that intersection is something worth having is because the lines are parallel and not perpendicular, that there's a distance that that quantum leap has to cross without crossing.
1: Exactly. We're saying the same thing.
0: But we have to argue about it for it to be worthwhile for the reader, as with the poem.
1: Yeah. No. No. (laughs) No.
0: I'm swinging wide here. I know you are. And I'm not taking your bait, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now we're in the poem.